0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Again, we're
1: going to be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 36. It says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he was going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of God.
0: Amen. So here we are in John 12, uh, 12 through 36. And uh, this passage this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus um, is a king. And we're going to look at how the cross is about victory. And I think a lot of times when we think about the cross, or we look at the cross, or you know maybe you watch a movie about the cross, you might miss that the cross is a victory. You might think that it looks like defeat, but I'll tell you guys, this passage is dripping with kingdom imagery as you look through it. There's all kinds of talk about Jesus being a king, and the ruler of this world being cast out and replaced by that king. And there's talk about the cross being a glorification of him, which I think is probably an unusual thing to your ears. Um, And I think you're really going to be moved by what's here. And so let's first look at Jesus rolling into Jerusalem. So in verse uh, 12, he rolls in as king. It says, the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, fear not. Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem here, this, this is 33 AD. This is the Sunday right before Passover. We're five days from the cross. And when he comes into that time, which we call Palm Sunday, he's coming in and being greeted by people that are desperate for a king. These, this Jewish crowd is desperate for a king. They've had 100 years of Roman occupation. They've been occupied by all kinds of other governments before that. And it is intolerable to them. You know, it was especially intolerable to a group called the Zealots. You know, they couldn't wait to get rid, of, uh, get rid of the Romans. And Jesus comes in a time, it's very strategic, when they're the most concentrated and the most angry. Okay, because this is Passover week. And Josephus says, the Jewish historian back then, he said that there could be as many as 2.7 million people in Jerusalem during Passover week. And remember that Passover week is a week to remember how God saved his people from bondage to Egypt. Okay, so you can imagine them thinking like, okay, let's celebrate. We got freed from bondage to Egypt and thinking, but we're in bondage now to the Romans. When is God going to do another exodus? When is he going to free us from this? And so, these are a people that are clamoring for a Messiah. What I mean by Messiah, I mean Savior King. They're looking for a Savior King. They're desperate for some sort of strong leader to come in and make their nation great again. Right? It's like the days, you know, to go back somehow to the days of David. Right? When, when the nation was powerful and it was strong. Or the days of Solomon, when they weren't kicked around. And so, they're desperate for this leader. And so enrolls Jesus, right, on a donkey, which is a little odd to our ears, right? And it's not only a donkey, it's the colt of a donkey. So it's like a a young donkey, you know? Like, you've seen donkeys, they're not real big. I'm a horse vet, I also work on donkeys. I work on miniature donkeys, but this wasn't a miniature one. But this is a young one, you know? This is a a colt. It says in Mark, it's one that had never been ridden before, which is quite a feat in itself. You know, you're going to hop on this donkey that's never been ridden before and, you know, go in in a parade, But Jesus is coming in, making a statement. And there is a statement of humility here, but there's also a statement of, I've come to be your king. And we see that in verse 15. Verse 15 is a a loose quotation of Zechariah. So Zechariah the prophet in the 6th century. Um, Actually, if you guys could turn to Zechariah 9, it would be helpful. It might take you a while to find it. So go ahead and work on that. It'll be worth it. We're going to use it multiple times. But... Zechariah this prophet 600 years before Jesus he said this in Zechariah 9:9 he said rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey and so Zechariah had set the people's expectations that when the messiah that great savior king came who was going to rescue the people that he was going to arrive on a young donkey so Jesus is making a bold claim here Here's, like, biggest gathering of Jewish people. He rolls into the capital city, right, on this donkey, which is basically a big card saying, like, I am your savior king. And he does this in the onlooking of the Romans. This is hugely dangerous, okay? The Romans were ruthless in how they treated revolutionaries, right? And so any he rolls on a donkey, this dangerous, bold claim to be their rightful king. And what's cool is the crowd knows what he means, You see that in verse 13. The crowd gets it. They know that Jesus has come to be king. And so you see how they respond with the palm branches and the crying out of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They know what he's doing. These palm branches, it's interesting, they are uh, date palms, they grow in that area, and they were a nationalist symbol. Not just a national symbol, they were a nationalist symbol. They were used back in the time in the Maccabees, when, when Simon the Maccabean in, in 141 ran the Syrians out. So this would be like 200 years before, and they ran the Syrians out of the area, you can read about it in the book of Maccabees. Um, they waved these palm branches as victory. So they're seeing this man come in on a donkey and they're waving these branches saying, this is our victorious king. This is the one that's going to save us. And they actually cry that out. Hosanna means save us now. They're like, save us now, save us now. You're the king of Israel. And guys, while they get that Jesus has come to be king, they do not get what kind of king he's come to be. While they know that he's come to bring a kingdom, they are misunderstanding what kind of kingdom he's come to bring. And so do we. You know, I think that this passage has a lot of correction for us, because the crowd expects Jesus to lead like an armed revolt like the Maccabees, right, and just get those Romans out of here and and set up his throne there. What they don't get is that Jesus has come to set up his throne, but he's going to do it, he's going to be lifted up to his throne by being lifted up on the cross, and that's going to be a huge surprise and disappointment to many of them, and there's... Ways of understanding what the crowd was thinking here that I don't think are right. Some people say, well, the problem with the crowd here is that they were thinking Jesus wanted to bring an earthly kingdom, and he didn't want to bring an earthly kingdom. That's what some people will say. He wanted to bring this real, political, earthly kingdom. And they say, no, 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 the problem is that Jesus wanted to in a spiritual kingdom. He doesn't really worry about the things on earth. He just wanted to bring a spiritual kingdom. That's not quite right, guys. By him identifying himself with Zechariah 9, he's saying he does want to bring an earthly kingdom. Actually, a global one. Take a look at Zechariah 9 again. If you pick it up in 10, after it says that he's going to come on this donkey, it says, um, Ephraim, uh, he says, um, I will cut off uh, the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will uh, break the battle bow and I will cut it off. And it says, he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He has come, Jesus has come to bring a kingdom on earth. He has come actually to bring a, first point, Jesus has come to bring a global kingdom. Okay, you can see that from that passage, from sea to sea, right? From from the river to the end of the earth. Jesus has come to bring this earthly kingdom. The problem is, is that the crowd, The kingdom that they want him to bring is far too small, right? They're just interested in a very small piece of real estate. They're very interested in a very small place. Um, They just want Jesus to kick the Romans out so their nation can be great again. He wants to bring an earthly kingdom that's global. They want a kingdom too small. You look at Zechariah 9. It talks about Jesus coming as as a global earthly king and removing all wars, speaking peace to all nations, having a kingdom from sea to sea, um, to the ends of the earth, and it talks about setting the prisoners free. The problem wasn't that the crowds wanted an earthly kingdom, but that Jesus came to bring a spiritual kingdom. That's not the problem. The problem is, is they wanted a kingdom too small. And I think that's our problem, too. I think many Christians are only interested in a Savior that will ease their daily lives. Right? It's, oh, Jesus, come and get rid of my Romans, <laughs> Right? <laughs> kind of a thing. And um, there's a Christian, um, there's a, he's not a Christian, he's a, I don't know if he's a Christian, his name's Christian sociologist Christian Smith, don't know if he's a Christian or not, at Notre Dame, has said that, our, that one of the main problems in, in, among Christians and among Americans is that they, their belief of God is what he calls moral therapeutic deism. Okay, He says most people, most professional Christians believe in something called moral therapeutic deism. It's moral because they believe that just God just cares if, about if we're right and fair and good with people, and as long as we do that, then we're right with God. It's moral. It's therapeutic in that the central goal goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Okay, so it's therapeutic. And it's deism. And deism, you guys remember, deism, they were the ones that said, you know, you kind of made that God made the world and wound it up and kind of walked away and left it, right? He says that many Americans, probably most, are deists in the sense that they don't believe God has any major plans to change things in this world or get involved, except when we need him for little life problems that we have. Okay, so God's more like a genie, right? So he's not, you know, this God who's come to transform the world, but when we want him, you know, we can rub the little lamp and have him come and solve some of our problems. And so it's moral therapeutic deism. And, and Dr. Smith believes that, that this is what most Christians, even most American Christians, think of God. The problem, guys, is that Jesus isn't a therapist. Would you agree with me? Jesus isn't a therapist, he's a king. And he's a global king with a global kingdom. And so we don't invite him to come and kind of somehow squeeze into our little kingdom and make things better. But what he does is he comes and he calls us to abandon our little micro kingdoms and actually give our allegiance to his global one. Okay, Jesus has come to be a global king, and we see that here in this passage. if you look at verse nineteen, we see the beginnings of his global influence because, as of now he hasn 't traveled more than two hundred miles from his home. he hasn 't you know left israel um, there 's not a big following that are people from outside of Israel, but in nineteen you start to see the bit of his global influence. You see in verse nineteen the Pharisees they see this him coming in and people throwing the palm branches and getting all excited. And they're freaking out, right? So in 19, the Pharisees say to one another, Look, see, you've gained nothing. Look, the world's going after him. Now, they just mean the the Jewish world at that point. But as if on cue in the next verse, in walk Greeks, okay? (laughs) And it says, Now those who were there among them, worshiping in the feast, were some Greeks. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that cool? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' global influence. Um, Jesus has always, God has always had a plan to make Jesus a global king. I love in Isaiah 49, 6, God speaking of his Messiah, Jesus says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. It's too light a thing. It's too little of a job for you. And to bring back and preserve Israel, I will make you a light to the nations. And my salvation shall reach the ends of the earth. He's like, I don't just have an interest in installing you as king over one nation. You're going to be the king of the earth. And guys, now, in this time, in our world, right now, there's 2 billion people worldwide that would claim to follow King Jesus. I mean, that's at least their claim. That's a massive global influence, right? So, firstly, Jesus has come to be a global king. Secondly, Jesus has come to be a courageous king. Something really interesting happens here in verse um, 21 and 22. Because when uh, these Greeks come on the scene and they say, we want to see Jesus, it triggers something in Jesus. It triggers a, a, a recalling or a thinking of the cost of his global kingdom. And you'll see what happens here. Look at verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Now, this is the answer, to These Greeks want to talk to you. He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. These Greeks' coming reminds him of his global kingdom, and it reminds him of how much it's going to cost him. And so he uses this kind of agricultural metaphor, right, about this grain falling into the ground. It has to die. This global harvest that Jesus is after... Um, is only going to come through seed, right? If you're going to have a harvest, you have to have a seed. And the seed for this harvest is his own death. Like He is the seed that's in five days going to die, be planted in the ground, and become the seed for this global harvest. And the Greeks coming remind him of that. He comes there, and immediately he starts to think about his death. And that death, guys, fills him with dread. Look at it in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I love this section, guys, because it really, it shows us really what, what true courage looks like, what real courage is. It, there's a wrestling here, isn't there, in this passage? It's like Gethsemane, right? Um, John doesn't cover Gethsemane. It's not in his gospel, but this kind of is the little Gethsemane moment in this gospel. You see what he says in verse 27? He goes, you know, my soul's troubled, and then he's like, what should I say, you know? Deliver me from this hour. You remember in Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. You know? He says, save me from this hour. And then he, and he backs up and he has a little self-talk and he says, no, 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 this is the purpose that I came. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Just like in Gethsemane, he said, he said, not my will, but yours, right? And he goes out resolute. And you remember what he went out resolute from the garden to do? He walks right into the trap, right? Judas and the soldiers are coming. Jesus knows Judas and the soldiers are coming and he walks right into it. Why? Because he came to do this. This is courage, guys. This is courage. Courage isn't a lack of fear. It's feeling the fear real deeply and stepping forward into it. And that's what Jesus does. He's come to be a courageous king. Because the thing the crowds want Jesus to do is so much easier, right? It's so much easier to whip up a group of people and kind of go after the Romans. Wouldn't have been easy to do. Lots of people there to do that. But the thing is, is that if he does that, it's just going to be another group coming in, Right? We've seen that in Israel's history. Get rid of the Romans, who's next, right? There's always going to be somebody next. Jesus has something far bigger to do. He's going to tackle the root of the problem. He's going after an enemy far bigger. He is going to take down evil and Satan. He's come as a courageous king. So he's come as a global king, a courageous king, and then thirdly, he's come as a victorious king. Check this out. Check out Jesus' target. Now remember, he's just a guy, so he looks. He's God in the flesh, but he looks like just a man Riding a young donkey into town. And this is his goal. Take a look at verse 31. Now is the time. Uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And if I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus isn't just going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to deal with the root of the problem. He's come into town on a donkey to defeat all evil and Satan himself. Big goal, right? (laughs) Something harder to do. And you might be thinking, I don't know if some of you guys are thinking this, but like some people when they hear Satan, you know, they kind of hear it in the church lady voice from Saturday Night Live or something. And and they might be tempted to think something like, come on, Eric, Satan, really? 21st century. You really believe in Satan? And I'll just say to you guys, um, you guys might think, you know, like you have an education. What are you doing this for? You know? (laughs) And yes, I do believe in Satan. And you know what's interesting, guys? Most people in the world, if you ask them, believe in a God. They go, yeah, that's where good stuff comes from. comes from God, right? And yet, for some reason, when you start talking about Satan, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That, he doesn't exist, right? But doesn't it make sense that there is a God and good things are coming from him, that there must be some personal form of evil, too? Have you guys read the news? Have you guys looked around? Have you seen your world? I mean, if you look at the radical evil that we see in the world today, and I think it's very hard now. I mean, earlier, maybe 100 years ago, oh, there's no real evil. It's just some people make bad decisions. We look at the world now and we go, like, there's evil, right? And why is it so far-fetched to believe that that evil has a life of its own? Doesn't it seem to have a life of its own? Doesn't there seem to be something personal behind this? There is. It's Satan. Jesus has come to defeat Satan and evil and to rid our world of all of that. Um, how does he do it? How is, how is the cross going to be the way by which he's going to defeat Satan and evil? And um, it's interesting to think about. It. I was thinking about it this week. And, and we have to remember that Satan has control in this world because he controls people, right? Satan has control in this world because he keeps people enslaved in his kingdom. And we all were once, if we weren't, were, were believers now, there was a time when we were enslaved in his kingdom, when we were a part of his kingdom of darkness. But if Jesus somehow can deal with our sin then he can free us from Satan's kingdom. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sin so he could transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the control of Satan, and into the kingdom of God. It says that in Colossians 1. Uh, Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so now, after the cross, people are free. Isn't this cool? People are free to escape from the kingdom of Satan and now live in the kingdom of God by trusting in Jesus' in Jesus's sacrifice. Isn't that cool? There's a way out now that wasn't there before. And that's in Zechariah 9 as well. If you guys still have Zechariah 9 open, look at the last verse that I read, verse Verse 11. Check this out. So this is 600 years before Jesus comes. Zechariah said, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You know, that this king was always meant to be a global king. He was always meant to be a courageous king and a victorious king. That by his blood he would free us. And now people are streaming out of bondage. And we, we see that even in our midst. We see that amongst our friends. We see that all over the world. We look at places like Africa and Asia, and we see people streaming out of bondage. From Satan to live in the freedom of Jesus. How about you? You know, are you living in the freedom of the kingdom? Jesus has come not just to forgive your sins, but to free you, to free you from slavery to the kingdom of darkness. And so I love this. So you're looking at the cross. The cross is not what it looks like, you know, to anyone that was an onlooker that day to see Jesus, you know, being beat and tortured and nailed to a cross and dying. It looked like, you know, Jesus was losing. But what it's really about is Jesus' victory. If you look at, um, if you look at uh, Colossians 2, it, uh, verse 14, it says that by canceling our record of debt and setting our sin aside by nailing it to the cross, that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. So Jesus' victory was over Satan, evil, um, the kingdom of darkness. And that's why when he speaks in here about his cross, he speaks of it as being glorified. It might be a surprise. He says, "Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified." And you're thinking, "Wait, that's resurrection, right? Or that's ascension, right?" And it's like, "No, it's the cross. The cross was his victory. The cross was him winning. He's winning a kingdom for himself." And I just love it because at the cross, evil was doing its worst, right, to Jesus, um, thinking it had the advantage, and instead, Jesus is defeating him. Jesus like used evil against itself. You know, evil did everything it wanted to do and then lost. Satan ended up at the cross not only shooting himself in the foot, but shooting himself in the head. You know, he was defeated. He was knocked down. So on Good Friday, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll have Good Friday. It'll be over at the French Valley campus. I'll be uh, preaching there. And um, you'll, on Good Friday, you see the forces of evil mocking Jesus, right? They put him in a purple robe, and they say, Ah, ha, you think you're king. Here's your purple robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they mock him, and they beat him, and they laugh, and they act like they're bowing down to him, right? Then they nail him to a cross, and on top of the cross it says, King of the Jews, right? All very ironic in their minds, right? But all the while, they're enthroning him without knowing. Isn't that cool? As they're mocking Jesus as king, God is making him king. I love that. That just, like, evil is so irrational and foolish that when it does its worst, it actually shoots itself, You know, that's what happened at the cross. So look at verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, speaking in two ways, right, about being on the cross, but also being lifted up and exalted. He says, I'll draw all men to myself. Guys, the cross is the victory of Jesus. It is his victory. And so we see that Jesus has come to be a global king, a courageous king, a victorious king, and then lastly, an eternal king. He's come to be an eternal king. There's this questioning that happens in um, verse 32. It talks about being lifted up, and the crowd is confused. And they say in verse 33, 34, they say, Well, wait a minute. We've heard that the Christ when he comes, or this Messiah when he comes, that he's going to live forever. And you're kind of talking about him dying. What's going on? Okay, What's the question here? It's a really good question. What they're bringing up is they're bringing up that David was promised a son, somebody from his lineage, that would reign on his throne forever. It's a Davidic covenant. You know, that he promised David there's going to be a king coming that's going to reign forever. And this promise was made a thousand years before. So they're like, okay, you're saying you're that king, you come in on the donkey, you're doing all this stuff, but then on the flip side, like you're saying you're going to die and be lifted up, and we know what you mean by that. What gives? What they don't understand is that he's going to be raised. He's going to be raised from the dead. Jesus is that human king from the line of David who will reign as king forever. He's God and man, reigning as that human king. And the cool thing is, he's getting far more real estate than David ever thought, right? I mean, there's tons of hints of it in the Old Testament, but I doubt David grasped all that. But he's getting the entire earth, sea to sea, ends of the earth. and, And so the crowd wants to know how that's possible, and it's possible by the resurrection. We know now that after he died, defeats evil and Satan and demons and frees people from bondage. He's raised three days later, He spends 40 days on earth showing everybody that he's raised, and physically he ascends. And then from there, he's going to come to reign on the earth and establish his kingdom forever. Isn't that awesome? So awesome. He is this eternal king, which solves a problem that we're facing right now in our government, which is the problem of succession. Okay, So you can have good leaders, you have good leaders for a while, and then you have to get a new one because they die, and sometimes they're horrible. And so that's the kind of thing we face right now. And that's the kind of thing that Israel faced. David, David was great, right? Problems, but great, okay? Solomon, great. Problems, but great. His sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, terrible. Split the kingdom, make it a disaster. Tons of disastrous kings after that. The cool thing is with Jesus, the eternal king, we don't have to worry about succession, right? He's going to rule forever. And so I just think about, I don't know how long it's going to be until this happens, but at some point Jesus comes, he makes this world new and he reigns forever. And then we don't have to worry about like 3015 and who we're we going to vote for and things like that. We don't have to worry about that because Jesus will reign forever. How do we respond to this? Just real quickly at the end here, I want to give you three ways to respond. How do we respond to this king and this kingdom? Because the people that are there that day, they don't totally get it, right? They get as much as they can get it, but they don't totally get it. You get it a lot more how do we respond? First one is surrender your kingdom to his. This produces anxiety, okay? We all have kingdoms, right? We all have our little kingdom. We all have our little life, right? And we defend our kingdom, okay? The Pharisees defended their kingdom. They said, look, what's happening? He's taking over. Nothing we're doing is working, right? There's all this anxiety, right? Because we don't naturally want to submit our little kingdoms to King Jesus, do we? Of areas of our lives. Maybe it's in the area of finances or sexuality, or maybe it's in the area of our work or our honesty or you know loving people or forgiving or things like that. We don't want to submit our A little kingdom to His kingdom. We don't want to do it. We defend it like the Pharisees are defending it here, guys. How much of our anxiety and our anger and our jealousy comes because we're trying to defend our tiny little temporary kingdom from King Jesus's? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Ton of it. Right. You know, we have, all of us, our problems in our families and our relationships or stuff, our kingdoms colliding, right? And what we what we need to do is not try to find a way for our kingdom to win, but for us to come up under Jesus' kingdom. And that's what he's calling us to do. We need to surrender our tiny temporary kingdoms for his global eternal one. He said that in verse 25. He said, whoever loves his life will lose it. You know, But whoever hates his life, meaning cast it aside that it's not as important as, as his... And this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Guys, our kingdoms won't last anyway, okay? <laughs> like, these things that we're viciously defending are not going to last anyway. Um, Jim Elliott, the missionary who died in South America, he said, um, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, Right? That makes total sense, doesn't it? Your kingdom won't last. You need to surrender your kingdom to his. And how fleeting, guys. And let me think about this, too. Like, how freeing is it to really say, I'm done with my kingdom, right? How freeing is it to just surrender your kingdom and say, all right, Jesus, you're my king. I'm gonna do what you want now. It's freeing, guys. It's freeing to find our identity, not in what we do, but in his his kingdom. Um, I love Hebrews 12, 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, how much of our shakenness is because we're holding on to our own kingdoms and not opening our hands and letting Him have it. Um, and I, I wanna say to the, you guys here that who are not yet followers of Jesus, if this sounds good to you, if this sounds good, if it sounds rational, if it sounds like, yeah, you know what? I can't hold on to this anyway. And, you know, look at him. He laid down his life for me. You know, of course I'll lay down my kingdom. If that sounds good to you, I want you to listen very carefully very carefully, to verse 34. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, The light is among you for a little while longer. And while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. Sorry, let me read that again. Walk in the light. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons and daughters of the light. Okay? If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, he's saying, you have a little light right now. You know? the, the kingdom of darkness is just that it's darkness. And, it's, and you guys can remember, those of you who got saved real recently, you can remember kind of that fog of the kingdom of darkness. It's foggy. You have like really foggy thoughts about God, really th- real foggy thoughts about truth, kind of led by emotion, not really knowing like what's what. And then right now you're hearing God's word and you're like, well, that's really clear. Okay, that's light. Okay, that light, Jesus is saying, walk in it, follow it, you know, because the ruler of darkness wants to keep you in darkness. Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons and daughters of the light. Respond to what you know. Respond to that little bit of light. And how you do that today is you would call out to God in prayer this morning, ask him to forgive you of your sins and transfer you into his kingdom. Why not give up your kingdom for a king who gave up his life for you? So firstly, giving up your your kingdom for his. Secondly, for those of us who have done that, learn how to live in the kingdom of God now. I love this. I love this theme of the kingdom of God. You guys know this. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply God's reign, okay? And the kingdom of God is experienced whenever people submit to the king of the kingdom, right? And so um, the kingdom is future in that his full kingdom is gonna come and, and make all things new, right? That's gonna happen. We sing about that. Jamal spoke about that the passage she was reading. But even now we can experience the kingdom as our lives are brought under the king. And as we live more and more and learn how to more and more submit our lives to Jesus' reign, we experience the kingdom. Okay? So it's an experience in your life. As people in your family, multitudes of you, start to actually learn to live more and more under the, um, under the authority of the king, you experience that in your families. We experience that here in the church, right, as we learn. That's what discipleship's about. Discipleship is about learning to live more and more under the reign of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We used to live in darkness, right? We used to live in that kingdom. We're freed from that now. Discipleship is learning how to walk in that freedom. And what happens is really cool is as I start to, as you start to, more and more live under the authority of King Jesus in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the kingdom is among you, right? And as some of us in our families start to, and I've talked about this before, but it's like little hotspots, right? You know, like a Wi-Fi hotspot? Little hotspots of the kingdom. And so your family starts to become a bigger hotspot. When we gather and we've, we're making an effort all week and, and today to live in the power of the Spirit and live in his kingdom, this becomes a hotspot that people can come and they can experience a bit of what that future kingdom's like. Isn't that a compelling vision of the church? I mean, that's why we're here. And so we're going to do some things after Easter to help you do that. Um, After Easter, we're going to have um, one group that's going to focus on spiritual disciplines. It'll be a midweek thing. And spiritual disciplines are really training practices to learn to live in the kingdom. Um, We'll have a relationship series here that we'll go through and we'll talk about things like, you know, what is true friendship? What does it look like, you know? What does it look like to be real spiritual friends to each other in the kingdom? Um peacemaking, what does it look like for us to actually extend forgiveness to each other in the kingdom? And we'll talk about family and what does it look like for a family to begin to start to be that hot spot of the kingdom? Um we'll learn we'll talk about marriage, we'll talk about kids. And then we'll back that up with some midweek groups. We got a um a marriage group that'll start. Couple weeks after Easter, that David's going to have at his house um, to to kind of reinforce those things. Can't do everything here, you know. There's this whole thing like there's there's air war and ground war, right? Do you guys know about this? So worship and the sermon and things like that are air war, right? You kind of dropping bombs right? And then there's ground war, right? And ground war is those groups, you know, where people kind of get involved with each other. It's, it's discipleship groups where people kind of get together and they really dig into each other's life. That's the ground war. You kind of have to get in the buildings and look around, right? Don't you? Won't be creepy. And so we'll have a, a midweek marriage group. We'll have a midweek parenting group, which we'll do a little bit after that. We don't want those to compete because people that want one probably want both, um, <laughs> We'll have a Foundations of Discipleship class. we we'll gonna have a men's one or a women's one. It'd be really great to kind of learn what is discipleship and how do we do that. And then um, we're going to have this thing called Secret Church. Dun, dun, dun. No. Um, so David Platt has this thing that he does once a year called Secret Church. And what it is is it's to equip people for world missions. And so at the end of April, we'll have limited sign-up for this, but there's a simulcast. We're going to do one at my house, one at Josh's. And it's going to be on kind of um, understanding different worldviews and kind of how can we be a part of, of God's global mission. Cool? So we've got all kinds of fun stuff to do. So then lastly, um, so uh, handing over your kingdom to Jesus' kingdom, uh, learn to live in the kingdom now, and then lastly, be a part of the kingdom advancing. Guys, God's kingdom is advancing. It's amazing how it's advancing. I mean, you think about like Rome at the time. They're like, we're a big deal. We're here forever, right? (laughs) Where are they? We don't know. We got some of their stuff. It's nice, you know, but they're not here anymore. Um, The kingdom of God came into Jerusalem in Jesus on a donkey, and the kingdom of God went out of Jerusalem through his people by the Holy Spirit and has gone all over the world, and continues to, and needs to more. But as more and more people trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're being transferred into his kingdom, right? And his kingdom advances, taking new territory. I love how Jesus talked about this. I've shared this with you before, but in Mark 3, Jesus talks about this advancing in the kingdom this way, Mark three twenty-seven, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house. Now, he's talking about Satan, right? He's talking about Satan and his control over this world. And Jesus says this, No man can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Like, first got to tie him up, okay? And then, indeed, you can plunder his house, okay? That's what's going on in this passage where he says the king of this world, the the ruler of this world is being cast out. We live in a time now where Satan's house is not being guarded like it used to be, okay? It's not locked right now. We could go rip him off, (laughs) Okay, that's what this is about. That's what the mission's about. The mission is going back and getting people, right, that belong to Jesus, that Satan had trapped, but now he's bound. And so what we need to do is we need to be a part of this good news. So how does that happen? It happens when we share the good news, right? It's happening, we learned last week in Cambodia, like crazy. It's happening here like crazy. It's happening wherever God sends you. And so we give you some cards, invite people to Easter and Good Friday and stuff. Guys, let's proclaim the victory of Jesus, Verse 36 says, Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Guys, the gospel's magnetic. To those whom the Spirit is working on, the gospel's magnetic. That's where we're about as a church. We want to plunder Satan's house. We want to take back things that belong to Jesus. That's the mission he's given us. Do you want to be a part of this? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the victory of the cross. And Lord, just help us to believe in the gospel. Help us to believe in your power. I mean, if we think about what you've done through the Holy Spirit, through your people in the last couple thousand years, it's remarkable. And we focus on the failures and things like that that we have had, and we have had many failures, but Lord, you are building your kingdom. And Lord, we want to be a part of it. We don't want to enter the new world and not have had... A stake in the expansion of your kingdom and so we pray Lord give us boldness, help us to really believe in the power of the gospel that if we could share simply what your son has done that you'll change hearts you'll free them from the domain of darkness you will um, you'll open eyes you'll give light it's something only you can do but Lord make us faithful to share it. And Lord, soon, very soon, we know that your son will come again. And when he comes again, he's going to come not on a donkey, but on a white horse. And he's going to come to bring his kingdom here completely. And I love how Thessalonians, Lord, says that when he comes, we're going to go out and meet him. Just like these people met Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we will go out and meet him in the air. And we will always be with you. And we thank you for that, Lord. Give us the boldness that goes with those truths. Thank you for these people, Lord. I thank you how you have opened their eyes and you have freed them from the domain of darkness, Lord. What a gift to have a community of people that desperately want to live out the kingdom now. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covegrace.org slash menifee.